Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we are here today to talk with someone who has taken the reins of their industry horse and steered off the lame, tired path to venture into unexplored territory that has kicked the dust up on the status quo. Our special guest has been implementing change for over 30 years in various fields. She's been fighting for inclusion and dismantling the biases faced by minorities and underrepresented populations. In addition to her current position, she is the co-founder of Latina Vida in Northern California and podcast host of Center Health EQ. When she's not focusing her time and energy being an outspoken civil rights activist, she is cheering on her San Jose Sharks, spending time with family and being her husband's first mate. Coming to us live from the San Francisco Bay Area, please welcome our early adopter and self-proclaimed careful disruptor, president and COO of Impact for Health, Maria Hernandez, alias The Equalizer. (laughs) Hi, Maria. Hey, KJ, how are you? I'm great, so glad to have you on today. So we're gonna get into this equalizer thing right away. I wanna know from you, first thing out of the gate, what is, the most important ingredient to disruption? Yeah, so um, thanks for calling out again that my LinkedIn profile says careful disruptor. I, yes. I did that for a reason. Um, I think it's really key to understand what's going to happen to an existing culture or sector uh, or industry when you introduce something that's novel or new. And what's its capacity to adapt? Um, I think in my space, uh, I feel like I'm a micro disruptor. Um, I certainly am doing some of that inside different healthcare systems. And I believe we need to be cautious about what we're trying to change inside an organization. You may have the better mousetrap, but if you're introducing something that's really new, uh, you need to know what are those unintended consequences. I think, you know, when I think of the large scale disruption that's happened, think about Craig Newman, you know, um, I don't think he wanted to kill newspapers, you know, Jeff Bezos, I don't think he wanted to kill the local bookstore. But both of those are examples of individuals who disrupted advertising, who disrupted how you buy a book, how you read a book. And what were the, you know, long term consequences of that? I I miss my bookstore. I miss, you know, a nice big newspaper some days. Mm -hmm. And I think they do, too. And it's just that you introduce something and you may not realize what that far down the line repercussion may be. And so I, I think of healthcare as a place where you want to be super, you know, careful, cautious, because not only is it a very conservative sector that, you know, requires a lot of momentum to change, um, it takes legislation to change health care. But when you do, um, there are really unintended consequences. And so, you know, we could talk about telemedicine, for example, and that's one where everybody's jumping on board. Mm-hmm. But for the communities that I am concerned about, it has some unintended consequences. So that's my number one, you know, caution and why I put careful disruptor on my on my profile. Yeah, that makes so much sense because, you know, careful can have different connotations with it, right? Because people that are careful tend to have this connotation that they don't know what they're doing, right? Yeah. And I know there's a degree of unknown with disruption, right? But what you're talking about is look at the long-term survival of this disruption. What are the ramifications? What are the consequences? And is it being mindful of that as you disrupt? Because there are things that need change, right? 
Absolutely. And again, I think that disruption is how we innovate in our um, economy and our society. It takes really bold people with lots of, you know, um, enthusiasm and hubris yes. and sometimes, you know, just, you know, blissful um, <laughs> ignorance times to just try something and see what happens, right? Um, I think in my environment and what I've had to navigate uh, as a woman of color in a really traditional conservative uh, sector, I, I cannot come across as someone that's just, you know, trying to do something radically different for the sake of doing something radically different. Right. I able to legitimize this work to people who have incredible um, responsibilities for the lives of others. And they tend to be, you know, super smart and super uh, traditional in many ways, because that's kind of what healthcare um, has um, supported. Uh, the breakthroughs in healthcare uh, come with people who are incredibly tenacious, incredibly focused, and um, very much uh, able to navigate all of the different political, organizational, and structural factors that make healthcare what it is today. But seriously, if you look at what's changed healthcare, uh, yes, it's people who are disruptors, but healthcare is probably one of the most regulated industries in our um, economy. It's also one of the largest parts of our economy. Mm -hmm. These massive legislation, you know, massive legislative acts to really do something um, profoundly different. You're right. And we, I think we forget about that because of all the marketing in our, you know, that's for our healthcare industry on TV and so forth. Right. Um, yeah. I think we forget because it, can seem, you know, very consumer, it is consumer driven, but we forget about the regulation and that's not a fast wheel to turn, right? Right. Absolutely not. I mean, look at the America, you know, what happened with the uh, Affordable Care Act. Um, I mean, that passed in 2010 and we are still trying to figure that out in many ways in healthcare. And uh, obviously it's trying to be killed again and again by the politics of the day. But that was such a massive change in the way we think about healthcare. And, um, you know, it's still a work in progress 10 years, 11 years later. Yeah, you're right. And so I think you said something very key. Um, you said, you know, healthcare, is traditional, very based on very traditional model practices, processes, so forth. But these people have this uh, extreme responsibility to save people's lives, right? Yeah. I mean, that is the crux of it. So I bet that it even puts pressure on it even more not to change because maybe, maybe they think what's been being, what's being done is working, right? Or hesitant to change because what if it does, you know, hurt those people. But I want you to tell me really, what is the, before we get into the disruption, what's the status quo in healthcare right now? Like, like paint that picture for me that will help explain the disruption to our listeners. Well, I'll, I'll just share the specific area of healthcare where I've tried to disrupt what's going on. Yeah. Because um, I, I think there's so many layers to healthcare, um, and it's really, you know, changing radically in a lot of ways right now. Um, I think that in healthcare, we have had 100 years of studies around health inequities, and it took a pandemic to actually make healthcare really pay attention to all of that literature. You know, I can cite you study after study a hundred years back hmm. where yeah. it was really clear that um, people of color, women, um, language minorities, um, they all have a different experience inside our healthcare system and it's not a good one. Uh, it can be deadly. And so I think what we're now beginning to understand is first and foremost, treating everybody the same, which is, you know, founded in our uh, fundamental beliefs in our country that you should, you know, be equitable um, is 
not necessarily a good thing to do because not everyone is starting out in the same place. Mm. So that discussion has been going on in a very deep way in healthcare, I'd say even in the last five years. But the actual, you know, proof and the impact of that uh, lack of equity in outcomes made so much more sense to people once the pandemic struck. Why we is were that? What was happening. Yeah. Um, because I think the data about the pandemic and who was dying from COVID-19 was really clear. You know, black and brown people were dying at two and a half or three times the rate of whites. Mm. And we were still trying to reach those communities in the same way that we were trying to reach everybody. Uh, or we were thinking that their experiences were the same as everybody. And that's not the case. So uh, I think those numbers made it just impossible to deny that there's inequities in healthcare. Um, the second is that um, the murder of George Floyd brought a lot more frustration, pent up, you know, resentment about the lack of equity in our society and the blatant racism that exists. And I think it made for activists and different communities, stakeholders to come out and say to a hospital, do something about this. You know that we are not being served. People are dying as a result. Get out there and work with those faith-based organizations, work with those community partners to solve this problem. And those voices got really loud uh, during the pandemic and especially- Very. Yeah, especially after the Black Lives Matter movement just exploded with George Floyd's murder. So I think that's why um, the uh, appetite for this right now is very different than it was just two years ago when I first really started promoting, you know, what I set out to do. So, yeah, so we have this time where we have 100 years of studies and then we have this time warp from the pandemic that has been. A, a changer for many things and also a catalyst for many things, right? So tell me your particular area of disruption and how this disrupts the status quo. So, so first of all, the status quo is that people are not all the same, but they've been treated all the same in healthcare, right? And there are certain populations where this does not work in healthcare. Give me an example of that, not in addition to what's happened that you said in the pandemic, right? So right before the pandemic uh, hit, there was enormous attention to maternal mortality. Okay. If you can fathom this, uh, the United States has a maternal mortality rate for Black women delivering a baby that's similar to third world countries. No. So- they die at two and a half times the rate of others. And from uh, what? From, well, uh, let me give you an example. I'm okay. going to give you an example. You're going to be surprised who this is. A black female giving birth to a child uh, who has a history of pulmonary embolisms. What's uh, that? Come, it's like a blood clot in your lungs. Okay. Okay. Uh, she complains about feeling sick and she thinks she's got another blood clot because she's had it before. And she's telling the nurses and staff, look, I think I've got this, please do something. And she coughs and coughs and coughs and coughs to the degree that she breaks her stitches from her C-section. And then they finally do what they need to do, which is check all of this stuff. Uh, she did have a blood clot. That woman was Serena Williams. And if you can fathom that a person as powerful as Serena Williams can't get heard when she's concerned about her uh, health, her status, what's going on with her body. Um, what happens to the average person that's, you know, facing that? Right. What does happen? So, well, you, I guess two and a half percent. I mean, is it two yeah. and a half times die in labor, in right? Or in childbirth. Right. Okay. Right. So tell me this. What is it? Is it just because the bias of the color or do they have some sort of medical false data fixed idea that people of certain body types or color or whatever, you know, when they complain that they're not really telling you the they're truth, like, I don't know. They're not heard. 
Uh, I'll give you another example. It's one that one of my clients is using in a film that we use to educate physicians and staff about unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. Woman gave birth and sometimes in birth, you have, you know, complications that create a lot of bleeding, excess bleeding. And so this woman um, is tremendously, you know, happy to be, you know, having her child they place the baby in her arms like most uh, hospitals do. And she says to the nurse, something's wrong. I, I don't feel well. There's something going on. Please take the baby. And the nurse actually says to her, don't you want to bond with your baby? There's nothing wrong with you. She passes out because she's bled so much. And she internally. Needs well, yes. Uh, and she's uh, in essence, uh, she's bleeding out, but she... Okay. Uh, she actually um, is doing so to such a degree and someone doesn't you know, notice this, um, she um, becomes unconscious as a result of bleeding. And thankfully, nothing happened to the baby, nothing happened to her other than this horrible exchange and this uh, potential uh, trauma. But that's another case in which an African-American woman who's got a symptom, a pain or something and asks for help is not heard. And in some instances, seconds matter, minutes matter. And um, I would just say every case is different, but th those are two examples of how, you know, if God forbid they hadn't been listened to further, um, they could have died. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, we know, for example, that African-Americans get less pain medication than others. Um, there's just, you know, these uh, unspoken biases. Well, they can handle it. I had a physician actually say out loud, you know, I guess I need to really reflect on that. If I see an Asian patient and they're complaining about uh, pain, I think I take that a little differently because they're such a stoic culture. And, and he was being gracious about how he knew that was just not the way to think about it, but he had to sort of process this out loud with the class and, and the class was really uh, quite supportive in saying, yeah, we need to think about why we have those biases. And can you imagine what that does to someone's quality of care? Right. So why so, do they have, the, I mean, this is a very ignorant question, but why do they have these biases? This is long-term systemic. Like, do they think they have a higher pain threshold? Are they taught and just not to listen to, you know, it, go through funny. like with the Asian culture, they go, oh, they're so stoic. They must be in pain with this culture that maybe they're more um, gregarious or outspoken or this or that. And they say, oh, they're just over communicating. Just ignore. Like, is that part of this? It, we, we don't well, know. Yeah, all of what you said is exactly the kind of unconscious, unintended, if you will, bias that a physician might bring into a situation. And we need to make it more conscious. We need to make sure that they understand that that can actually influence a healthcare outcome yeah. in a negative way. Um, yeah. And remember, all of us have unconscious bias. You have, I do, because we're a product of the society in which we've grown up. Those images or mental models of different communities, uh, different cultures are rampant. They're everywhere. And you cannot, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, you cannot grow up uh, in this country without having those kinds of ideas. I agree. It's just impossible. So I agree. So I try to go at this by saying to, you know, physicians in, in the course and the classes that we facilitate, we all have unconscious bias. Um, it's a function of how the human brain works. We make snap judgments to make sense out of our world. And sometimes those snap judgments are even contrary to our intentions, our values, our beliefs, our spoken, you know, ideas about people. So when you're about to work with someone or see a patient who's different from you, it's important to take that first step of just pause. Think about what might be triggered by the conversation, whether it's, you know, the patient's looks, their accent, their approach to the appointment, and, and take that time out and say, how can I prevent myself from being triggered to, to act in a certain way, to assume certain things? and make a more accurate assessment of what's really going on. And by the way, that takes a lot of mindfulness 
It takes being reminded of it in it ways. It takes a lot of judgment over your yeah. environment. You know, yeah. it's a lot of judgment, which, yeah. you know, is an indicator to me of intelligence, <laughs> right? So, uh, so what is this disruption? I mean, uh, okay, so you're talking about this and it needs to be more mindful and needs to take into account certain things, but what is the disruption that's helping do this? Yeah, so I think, of course, we've continued to train uh, around unconscious bias and culturally effective care. I mean, those were things that we were doing before we introduced this product. It's called the Inclusion Scorecard for Population Health. And I want to walk you back a little bit and tell you, like, what it was that made this sort of come to life. Okay, good. Me. So Inclusion Scorecard for Population, for population Health. health. Okay, right. got it. So I ended up being on a board of a local hospital back, I think my first uh, year was 2014. And the Affordable Care Act had passed in 2010. Uh, and then it was you know, recertified a couple of times over the course of that same period. But I was listening to a lot of consultants come in and talk to us about, oh, you know, we need to go to value-based care. We're going to try and keep people healthy. We want to work with entire populations that we know might be vulnerable to illnesses and try to make sure they don't get sick. So mm -hmm. pre-diabetes, people who need to get cancer screenings, people who need to work on their high blood pressure so that they don't have a stroke or a heart attack. These were often talked about as the rising risk pool of patients that a hospital needs to take care of. And population health was the man, this mantra, you know, we're going to try and reduce that risk by making sure we work with those patients. And none of those consultants said the word diversity or said the word inclusion or talked about equity. They all talked about the cost of care. Mm. And I was just floored by that. So this is 2014, 2015. And, you know, uh, I was new to this role of being a trustee, so I was trying to be very thoughtful and respectful, but I started asking those questions and I would get this sort of deer in the headlight look. And I thought- like What kind of questions would you ask? Um, so for example, how are we going to help Latinos not get diabetes? Um, the traditional sort of approach is exercise more, um, eat better food, and watch your blood sugar, right? Monitor this. And, um, you know, most of those programs historically have been very kind of um, white male culture centric. Well, take charge of your healthcare. You're gonna try and track your eating habits. You're gonna get out on the treadmill. And in the Latino culture, it's a family decision to change your diet mm. because it's gonna influence the entire family. And, you know, um, Latinos are very different in terms of, you know, how they spend that, you know, uh, spare time. It's not going to the gym necessarily as much as it is being with your family. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm speaking very broadly here, very uh, much in, in, in general terms. Uh, there's always unique uh, individuals, right? But what I learned is that some hospitals were already aware of this and they were looking at talking to Latinos about, you know, join your kids soccer, you know, uh, exercise, you know, go out, and, you know, play with them because that's going to get you a little bit of exercise or think about different ways to make the meals that you make. So let's make a burrito without so much, you know, um, fat, or let's make more uh, vegetarian burritos if we can, so that we cut down on some of the cholesterol, right? right. A lot of things are being talked about. And that's a really good example of culturally effective care. Yeah. But it's rare. Like So that was like less than 2%, less than 0.1%. Uh, I don't know, but very yeah, small. Okay. Very small. So I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, this is what we need to be doing at our hospital. And then at the same time, I read Atul Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto, which is about really smart people, surgeons, having literally a checklist or a protocol, if you want to make it more fancy, to um, make sure certain things are done in surgery. And that would save lives and cut down on errors. And I just was fascinated that he 
wrote about such a smart group of people needing something so simple to make surgery safer. And standard. And he had this, yeah, and, and he had this larger message that healthcare really needed to change from the culture of, you know, these lone cowboys, these physicians that, you know, get to do what they want to do, have a lot of ego and hubris to a place where you need to collaborate with a lot of people to get us, get this right. It's too complex to solve all of these problems in healthcare by just one person trying to do it alone. So the checklist manifesto, I think was published in 2015. And I started to work on this idea. What if I made a checklist around all the things that hospitals do to reduce health inequities? And I put this list in such a format that anybody in the system can look at it can take a moment to see, are we doing these things? And if I don't understand what that is, can I add a knowledge base that kind of does the Google search for them so that they don't have to go do this? And um, it took us a couple of years to get all of that literature that I talked about being published before to put it inside this online sort of dashboard that anybody in a healthcare system can uh, read the item and then rate themselves on how they're applying that best practice. So right now we've got over 80 different things that are sort of, you know, organized in a whole bunch of ways for a hospital to use. And um, the highest compliment we get from this is, you know, of course, like, wow, this is really helpful. But the highest compliment is you have operationalized health equity. Holy cow. Yeah. Okay, wait. You have, give me that sound bite again. You have operationalized health equity. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Pardon my French, but holy shit. So you take something that is this, you know, oh, wow, a novel idea. Let's have a checklist to make sure things are standard. And then you go, what about all these hundred year studies and all these things that we know about cultural differences and cultures that actually affect our lives, mm -hmm. which affect our most intimate part of ourselves, which is our health. And let's put this together in a checklist that's technology-based, right? Exactly. So that people can learn about differences and operationalize health equity. That's right. It's, it's taking all of that literature that would take anybody a couple of years to go read, right? Because I can tell you that's, that's what it can do to you. And we also, of course, interviewed some of those health systems that were a little bit further along mm. in what they were doing to advance health equity. Adventist Health is one. I mean, they were doing some pretty innovative things. Froder Health in uh, Wisconsin was doing some innovative stuff. Kaiser Permanente. I mean, those are environments that were already thinking out of Prime. the box about how to do this, right? So they were early to that discussion and early to those efforts. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll never forget one of the conversations I had with a, a researcher at one of the leading institutes around healthcare and health innovation. He said to me, this is before the pandemic. This is before the George Floyd murder. This was really like almost two years before. He said, I love what you've done. I'm going to be super curious if this is enough to get people to do what they need to do. I don't think you've summarized anything new. And I said, you're right, I haven't. He said, you've made it super convenient, super easy for people to do. What's needed is the will. And so, you know, in all candor, when we first introduced this, um, and you know, his, his voice was resonating in my head because it was really hard to get people to respond. And that's my next question. Like who, before we get to the, like the response, who have been the early adopters besides those four health systems that you said were already doing things like who have been the early adopters in this you yeah. know, new, I, I call it a new health paradigm. It, it is in some degrees. Um, I, I'd say, you know, I can certainly point to some hospitals that were first to the table to do this work. 
um, Adventist Health was one of our pilot sites. Um, even the hospital where I was a trustee, they used it for our health equity initiative. Um, and I should say, we give away this product for free. We actually don't charge people to set it up for them and let them go do what they need to do. Um, I could go down a list. I think what's really interesting to me, though, about that question is the early adopters required people inside these systems who were equally frustrated with what the status quo was as I was and who saw the opportunity to disrupt the process of advancing mm. health equity. So I, I think, I don't know, you know, we're all cut so out. So the early adopters world. had people in their own systems that yes. had the reality of what was going on and saw the opportunity. So those have been the early adopters. Yeah. And I think they're the early adopters about what I would call advancing health equity through a number of different strategies. They all have to be there to do it. But, uh, you know, there are those hospitals that had already uh, a strong passion for serving those diverse communities. Mm -hmm. They knew that you don't treat everybody the same. And they were working on different methodologies to do that. And again, my contribution to this journey is to pinpoint all of those different activities, put them in one place so that you don't have to go reinvent the wheel and, you know, in essence, um, make for, uh, you know, a very quick deployment of all the information that's needed to do this. Um, I would not want anybody to have to spend the amount of time that we did to go capture that. Um, I want for people to say, here are these tremendous, you know, advancements, new ways of approaching uh, diverse populations. And I would want them to feel like, you know, we can't do it all at once, but we can pinpoint a few things that mean a lot to us and get started right away. And that's what's going on. Wow. So what a beautiful way just separately to learn about cultures and what makes us different and what makes us similar and understand for better treatment of mankind. Like it really is altruistic. It, I know that it, it you is. have studies that have helped them financially as well, right? So, uh, okay, first, before we get into that, because that's really very interesting, nothing happens in America unless it affects your pocketbook, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? That's just like the hard, fast truth of it. Yeah. Who, where are you having trouble in adoption? I would say the, that right now, the trouble is, of course, any system that's overwhelmed by responding to COVID-19. So recognize that some, some of the hospitals that were deeply impacted by the pandemic had no bandwidth to take on anything. And so I don't consider that true resistance, but I would just say, um, even in those environments, some, some of the clients that we do have that have been working with us, they were in the throes of COVID-19 as well. And it took a visionary leader to say, I know we're really overwhelmed. I know we're swamped, but we need to address this and we're going to go do something about it anyway. And I think that is one type of resistance. The other is, um, you know, denial is not just a river to, in, the, in Egypt, right? It's something <laughs> that still exists. I, I think you still find people who because they think, um, I don't have a racist bone in my body. I can't imagine our physicians are behaving differently. I can't imagine that we're doing anything wrong with people. We're treating everybody the same. You know, that streak is still out there. And that story being repeated in very high places means there's no budget or there's no staff around this or there's no momentum to get this done. And so there are still those individuals that just don't want to look at what's happening and walk through that data and say, you know, this is happening because bias exists in our system. And there's ways in which we can deal with this. And we're going to have to take that very, very careful and long-term journey to address that. This is not something that gets fixed overnight. 
you're looking at two to three years to really implement a lot of these programs and probably four in one five. health system. Yep. And four or five years before you begin to see uh, the kind of changes in outcomes that are absolutely essential to, to manage. Wow. So it's a, uh, they're looking for a short-term fix. And if it's not that boy, it really doesn't change that bias. So what are some of the um, outcomes that have happened for these health systems that are applying this? So I think in general, you're seeing uh, health systems that are getting much better at understanding what patients need in order to uh, get the care that they obviously are, are seeking. Um, I think that the pandemic, for example, taught us again that you can't achieve health equity inside the four walls of a hospital. You will find the best success about COVID-19 and getting vaccinations, getting people tested, is where health systems had partnerships with those community groups that are already touching the lives of those patients that they see. So I think those are early wins with the pandemic in particular. In California, though, I'm going to share one other important piece of a win. Mm -hmm. um, one of the systems that I work with, Sutter Health, uh, their chief medical officer was very passionate about addressing uh, what I mentioned earlier, uh, maternal mortality. And through a lot of discussions, at that time, she was Senator Kamala Harris, now, of course, Vice President. Uh, Dr. Stephen Lockhart uh, was very influential in mobilizing discussions about what was going on with maternal mortality. And as a result, California passed a law that anybody in the OBGYN uh, sphere, if you will, the physicians that work with women delivering babies are going to need to take an unconscious bias course and how to prevent that from influencing decisions about uh, the birth and the maternal uh, conditions uh, that, that, they're that they're trying to uh, address. And so- When was um, that passed? Just this last year. Okay. So, um, I think and do we have any outcomes from that? Like, yeah, so I know that they are tracking data of the patients that they see in their own hospital system. It's a pretty large system in Northern California. And there are improvements. I think the conversations have changed. I think people are really trying to do things very differently. Um, I'm super proud that we are part of that organization and what we're doing there is not so much the scorecard, but doing some of that training. So the awareness factor, I think, has improved. Um, and I think we're going to see those numbers change. I don't have that data for you, but I, I would just say um, even just watching what happens in our courses and how much people begin to just have difficult conversations like the one that I just shared, you know, mm -hmm. about pain medication, just that alone is changing the dynamics for a system that sees about, you know, three to 4 million people every year. Right. So there's, there's a lot that I think we can soon go back to and say, this is what's happened. Wow. That's incredible. That's super cool. So the, the day you said that's it or the week or the year or whatever, was that when you were the trustee and you were in yeah. that hospital and you said, like, what the hell is going on? Like, here's the elephant in the room and no one's talking about it. Yeah. I, I mean, it was literally watching one of those presentations, getting the handouts and looking at all of this stuff about population health, you know, trying to manage the risk pool, trying to address the needs of you know, the communities that we serve and the word diversity, the word inclusion, the word equity does not appear anywhere there. That's changed. It's getting better. But at that time, it was really frustrating. I just thought, you know, no wonder things aren't moving in the right direction for the communities that I'm concerned about. Right. And um, I think I, I would share one other thing that happened to me around that time. And that's my dad had his first battle with cancer and um, he's being wheeled into surgery and we're speaking Spanish because that's what we do at home. Yeah. And he says all of a sudden, stop, don't speak Spanish. They're going to think I'm stupid and they're not going to help me. Oh. And that floored me. I just thought, 
wow, I mean, he's got me, he's got my brother, who's a physician, he's got my other brother, who's a, you know, high ranking state official. And he's afraid that he's not going to be treated well. Um, for me, that's how inequities start. Because imagine if we're not there and imagine how he's going to navigate the rest of his you know, experience with those physicians or the nurses that are taking care of him. And of course, we were there. We were his patient advocates. But I got to tell you, I saw him change radically after surgery when he wakes up and we're all there. And one of the nurses is Latina. And he felt a lot different, like, OK, I can who I am. But to have a life-threatening condition, to be worried about language being a factor in how you're going to be treated, to be scared, right? And that was the other moment for me that said, I got to do something. I got to make this clearer for people. And I got to make it something that they can, you know, make very tangible changes with. So all of that happened kind of at the same time. And that's that was my, that's it moment. So when are you going to be able to uh, go back and say, see, I told you so when they're looking at the cost <laughs> of healthcare, like, when are you going to be able to do that? Because I know that's going to be a, yeah. a victorious day for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, the health and human services arm of the federal government once calculated that inequities cost us about like $1.2 trillion a year because people have to get, you know, more treatments. People uh, obviously uh, have medical errors. People have, you know, poor outcomes and have to, you know, um, be hospitalized again and again. I think that- It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's an extraordinary amount of money. And I think that we're gonna get to a place where hospitals as they implement some of these changes that are happening, they're gonna tie it to the bottom line and they're going to look at re-hospitalization rates. They're gonna look at patient satisfaction. They're going to look at compliance or patient engagement, like how well people actually follow Mm -hmm. through. And those three alone, uh, when they start adding up the numbers involved, I think those are going to be the real, you know, determinants of the success of these types of programs that we're trying to launch. I I believe it's going to take a while, though, for the financial picture to be clear. Um, it, it's probably going to be another two or three years for that to be uh, seen. But as, you know, God is my witness, I think it's going to be there. I'm convinced that um, when you don't have the kind of medical errors or you know poor outcomes that we've seen in the past, I think that's going to save us, you know, not just time and money, but it's going to save people's lives and their sense of efficacy about how to navigate what they need to do to take care of themselves. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, um, that's huge. And some, I mean, and some of those things aren't going to be measured in dollars. They're going to be measured in the quality of life that somebody has and how they say, you know, I'm comfortable. I, I know what to do to manage my diabetes and I'm doing it well and I'm feeling good. I mean, that's where I want to go. That's and, really the pay of living though, isn't it? For you, that's yeah. the pay of living. Yeah. That's yeah. Gas, Maria. Yeah. I, I just heard somebody say this on a program. Uh, I, I don't have the money gene. I really don't. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I, I have the passion gene. I'm doing this out of passion for what I care about. Yeah. 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 Well, that's your purpose. It definitely drives you. Um, so you tell me what the future is going to look like, at least in a couple of years, right? Uh, a few years. Tell me right now, what's your biggest challenge? You mentioned cybersecurity when we were talking before, and I find this to be like unfathomable how that now is your biggest roadblock. (laughs) Yes. So we built this scorecard on something called Smartsheet. It's a really great tool that hospitals were using anyway. Um, It's great for strategic planning. People use it sometimes for surveys because there's really cool ways to leverage this platform. I sometimes call it the Excel spreadsheet on steroids because uh, that's actually its roots. Uh, Some uh, guys from Microsoft left and created this 
uh, incredible software platform for people to use the way that they used Excel, but it's dynamic. It's uh, every row can be shared, can be highlighted with additional links and so on. Anyway, um, yeah, about a year ago, one hospital that we were working with said, we are not going to be able to access your uh, software. We're going to have to download everything and, you know, basically put it in a PDF format. And um, at that time, uh, some of these big cybersecurity uh, incidents had not yet occurred, but some hospitals had had uh, some really horrible um, cyber threats and had Trojans, so they couldn't get to any of their patient data. They had to pay the ransomware. And, you know, it, it was, you know, one of those things that was probably a small piece in the newspaper, but now it's huge. And I think uh, for all the right reasons, hospitals need to be absolutely certain that people's, you know, information is secure, that the data about, you know, how we're doing certain things for uh, managing equipment that we use for surgeries and so on, that has to be secure. Um, but I think what keeps me up at night right now is how do I navigate, you know, those systems that are going to say, we're not going to let you use this, or uh, you need to build something that can be developed internal inside our own firewall. Um, that's, uh, you know, something that, that we may have to address. Fortunately, just, you know, I can say to people, Smartsheet has um, military-grade encryption. I mean, they are really doing everything possible to keep their uh, platform secure. But, um, you know, like anything, you're only as secure as the people who follow instructions. And there are still human beings on this planet that have passwords for themselves that are one, two, three, four, <laughs> and don't use dual authentication. You know, they find it inconvenient to have to do that whole thing with your phone, log in and all right. of that stuff, right? So um, I think that uh, the level of security that we need for the work that we all do has um, multiplied enormously because we all know that one click can send you into a deep dive into things you never thought you had to plan for. Yeah, well, so, it's unconscionable that you have to worry about that now with everything that you need to do, right? But yeah. let's hope, let's cross our fingers. We have a listener <laughs> out there that's like <laughs> gonna approach you and say, I have a solution. <laughs> Right. Let's put it out in the universe. Put it out in the universe. Let's see what they would say. Let's see. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, Maria, who are you? <laughs> like, seriously, you are this quiet, careful disruptor. What have you always been this way? Like, tell me about little Maria. Yeah. So I've been a Latina for 63 years on this planet. I can tell you that um, I grew up in a really odd environment because my parents um, did not live in uh, East LA for very long. I think I was about five years old when we moved out uh, and kind of had a couple of years of, of living in different places, but all of our relatives stayed in East LA and we lived in a very quite suburban town uh, community of Los Angeles, Temple City. And at the time, I think we were like the five Latino families. No way. And I would say, um, you know, inside our house was Mexico. Outside of our house was the United States. And many first-generation families, you know, uh, first-generation individuals go through that. But it made me a real observant person. I studied people quite a bit. And I noticed differences quite a bit because Temple City did not look like Lincoln Heights. And the stuff that you could buy in Lincoln Heights was not the stuff you could buy in Temple City. So um, I think that prompted me to want to study psychology. And I ended up studying community psychology because mm -hmm. I was just so fascinated by that cultural difference. Stark difference every day. Every day. And literally Lincoln Heights and Temple City were 15 miles apart. So um, 
I've always been very observant. I've always had a passion for, you know, really connecting with people and understanding their perspectives. And so I love, uh, you know, the opportunity to meet new people. I'm one of those persons that can, you know, on a plane ride going back east, if you want to talk, I could know. You're all the person your that talks. Are you the one? Well, I, I could be. I, I know how to be okay. not the talker. But if you want to talk, I probably will know a lot about you by the time we're flying I bet, from Arizona. That's that's me. And then I can also be quiet. Sure. Absolutely. Right. 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 <laughs> and so that formed a lot of uh natural curiosity for you and wanting to know more it formed the direction that you went in your education right yep. Yep. and then what about what about after that I mean obviously we know after that as in present time but yeah um I honestly wanted to do the best I could to find the right kind of role for myself in my life and at the time, was my that parents, experimental, like after college and like trying to figure this out, or you knew exactly where you wanted to, what you wanted to do well, and where you wanted to go? Yeah. So here's the story. I knew I wanted to be a psychologist and my parents said, you know, that's a really hard life and you're going to get married. You're going to want to be home with kids. Why would you go and study so long a period of time? And uh, I kind of bought into that for the first year of college. I went to a community college and I started by majoring in being a legal secretary. So I'm one of those folks that studied shorthand and how to file stuff. And it served me well because I've oh, learned good. how to be really organized. <laughs> but I got a, like a C in shorthand and I got an A in psychology. And the, the professor I had she was very stern and she was like one of those really serious professors. And she comes up to me and she goes, hey, nobody gets an A in my class real easy. What are you majoring in? And I said, well, I'm going to be a legal secretary. And she literally puts her glasses down over her nose and she goes, I think you can aspire to do better. And she walks away and I'm like, wow. And I changed my mind at that point. And Thank I God for her. Thank God for her. She was wonderful. She was a, a good person to really call that out. And um, I thought it was going to be an academic all my life. I got a PhD because that's kind of the way you get in that door. And six years into academia, I, I thought I was just going to, you know, scream my head off, you know, just, it was just so frustrating. And I was 26 years old when I finished my PhD. So I was super young and you know, I have to say the thing at that time in uh, academia is I was not a male, I was not white, and I didn't have, you know, a lot of patience either. And so I left, I left a perfectly good job and started consulting and that's how I ended up. And here you are. So you here seem like the most patient person to me, but I think you're <laughs> also quietly impatient as you are a quiet <laughs> disruptor, right? Yeah, I, I don't, I'll say this, I have a lot of patience for learning for, you know, studying something. <clears throat> I don't have a lot of patience for stupidity. Okay, good. That, me that, either. That, <laughs> yeah, that, that part of it is just no, I'm not going there. You want okay, to be, good. You want to be stupid. Come out. I'm You're a woman late. after my own heart. So what do you do outside of work? What are your crazy passions? Um, so, uh, you know, I started this nonprofit a few years ago, just to be able to give back to my community. It's dedicated to inspiring the next generation of Latina leaders and executives. Um, so that's uh, a, a really important part of what I do when I'm What's not, the name of it? It's called Latina Vida. Which oh, is yeah. I mentioned Latina, that before. Latina Vida. Right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Vida stands for visibility, identity determination and action. Mm. It's, it's the, uh, you know, four things that I say to young women, uh, when I look back on my career, um, I was visible to people at the right time in the right place and had opportunity. I began to identify as a leader early in my career. I didn't wait for someone to tell me that I had that potential I claimed it. I want to be a leader. I want to influence. I want to make for those kinds of decisions. Determination, uh, in Spanish, we say ganas. Um, 
you can't do what you know uh, people do to get to the C-suite without being determined and tenacious and really focused on you know the right actions, which is the last piece. And so that's uh, the the nonprofit's goal is to teach a younger generation what it takes to actually navigate there. And we do this for every one that wants to come to our programs. Our, our uh, sponsors are really large corporations that ask us to come in and provide that kind of training to wow. their staff. So we do it for everyone, but it's been really rewarding. And then, I mean, uh, I think one of the things I've also had to come to grips with is just your brain does need to decompress. And so uh, fortunately, my husband, um, we bought a boat a couple years ago now. Did you say unfortunately? I said, fortunately. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But some days, those of us who sail could say, unfortunately. And why? Because you can become a boat widow in a matter of months, right? They go just. Have you almost uh, lost your husband? uh, Well, I'll use this term. He can go apeshit crazy over new things he wants to do (laughs) to the boat, right? But. Um, and, and sailing is an incredible sport. It is, you, you really have so much to absorb and to learn to make sure you're safe, of course, and also to navigate. And I often say, you know, it can be like five hours of sheer boredom waiting for the right wind to come, and, you know, get the sails all in a certain position. And then it can be 15 minutes of sheer terror oh my God, we're going to die now. Right. Um, so that's what we do. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you're a glutton for punishment for those 15 minutes. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I don't, is that decompressing? I don't know. (laughs) I'll tell you, it, it it makes you appreciate your life a whole lot. And, you know, it makes for you to appreciate all of those folks that explored the globe on boats that had no equipment, right? That makes it really impressive. But it's good to be out there. It takes your mind off of everything um, that you are trying to face. And some days I feel like I'm living the front pages of the New York Times, you know. You are. I'm, I'm in that trench with others. You are. Do that. And so you have to, I mean, sailing is one thing. You you do have to be, I think, if you're going to do this work, there's a spiritual side that you have to find um, that sometimes you're planting that seed. You're going to water it and you're not going to see that grow. And that's okay. You've done your share of this work and that's meaningful. Um, so uh, that's the other side of you know my life right now is to be thoughtful to be cautious not to get, you know, so overwhelmed that I can't do what I need to do each day for the work that we do with, you know, we're like in five different systems right now. And it's really hard work. It's not easy. So that is uh, very spiritual because you have to have faith that your work is going to be realized long after you're gone. Absolutely. Uh, And that you're, you're building capacity for others to do this work that it's not about you. It's about a body of work, body of knowledge that can be learned, that can be transferred over to others. And the more that you do that, the more effective it becomes. And you know, your reach into that organization, certainly into that community is far greater than what you can do alone. So that's, I think, another part of my day, I try to spend at least, you know, 10 minutes or more in my garden, you know, doing all of the stuff that gardeners do, butzing around, uh, growing tomatoes, growing zucchini, growing a whole bunch of good stuff. But it's, um, it's really a good metaphor for where I'm at. I'll wow. say that. Yeah. What a beautiful disruptor. Okay. So tell people where to find you. So best thing to do is come to our website, www.impact4health, and it's the number four. Uh, I'm also on Twitter a lot, so uh, at, it's Dr. M.G. Hernandez, and uh, you can find me there, but uh, honestly, our website is the best place to go. You can find Wait, a lot now, of Wait, what did you just say, M.G. Hernandez? M.G. Hernandez? Yeah, actually, the Twitter handle is Dr. M.G. Hernandez. Okay. 
Good. Yeah. And energy. also um, Latina Vida, is that latinavida.org? Yeah. Absolutely. You got it. Okay, good. Maria, thank you. Thank you so much, KJ. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, you bet. It has been a lot of fun. So everybody, that's it. If you learned something today or you laughed or you actually have an idea for Maria to help her with her cybersecurity concerns, contact her or tell people about the show so they can. And thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption Podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.